So, thank you so much for joining us, Nate. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, it's great to be here tonight. Great to have you in Europe. Um, let's jump right in. We had a session this afternoon with Mike Moritz speaking about obsession and that the germ of breakthrough ideas doesn't come from university. It comes from an avocation and obsession that you have as a teenager. Take us back when you were a teenager. What, what drove you? What, what was your obsession? Well, uh, I always like to tinker with things and... Um, At the age of 12, I was homesick from school one day, and I started looking through my dad's books that he had about computers and coding, and that began a hobby of coding uh, that I had, and I was posting my work on the internet, saying, if you like my work, please send me uh, $5. Uh, <laughs> well, nobody ever sent me $5, but I got a phone call at the age of 14, and someone said, I want to pay you $1,000 to create something similar. And my dad laughed and said, son, no one from the internet's going to pay you $1,000. Uh, I said, whatever, dad, I'm going to do it anyways. And I did it. Sure enough, I did get paid. I also got introduced to other people who wanted similar work done. And I think, you know, I see the trend, if I look back, which is that, you know, I always just had this passion to build. And sometimes it didn't really matter what my expectation was. I didn't expect to get paid even. I did the work and something good came of it. Uh -huh. um, and so you never know when you're doing a project and you're building something, the interesting ways in which it might help you in the future. I think, you know, We'll talk a bit about Airbnb, obviously a big success, but you know, aside from Airbnb, there's plenty of things I've worked on that I've thrown away. But I look back to all those projects I threw away and I think to myself, I actually learned a lot yeah. in the process. And I don't think Airbnb would be successful without having learned uh, you know, on the job, basically, the yeah. job being, being pursuing my passion. So you know, the, the act of tinkering, learning how things work, building, you know, set the foundation uh, for, for success with Airbnb. I love that story and how early it started. Let's maybe speak a little bit about choices because you had to make a really, really difficult one when you were at university. And since we have many students, next generation entrepreneurs here, so you got accepted into Harvard undergrad and you built a company actually many years before that was doing 1 million revenue. So quite something successful for someone who just goes to university and you decided to stop it and to finish university How hard was that decision? And, you know, there are some friends like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, who decided to do it the other way. So how, how did it feel back then? Yeah, well, there, there's a couple of decisions I made. One was, you know, when I was applying to colleges, my dad was like, you know, you don't have to go to college. So like, you have this business, you know, I'll set up a trailer in the backyard and you can <laughs> run your business out of there and have your own space. And I said, well, you know, dad, I, I feel like this is a, a unique experience I want to go through. So I applied, I got into Harvard, I went to Harvard and I was trying to do both for the first year and I did. But it got to be too much. And I, I made the choice to stick with Harvard and shut down my teenage year business. And I guess there's a couple of parts to it. One, I mean, look, it wasn't like a $100 million company or something. <laughs> it really <laughs> was. Maybe just, it would have been later on. So. Yeah. So maybe the answer would be different if it was something of that scale. It was more a lifestyle business. A good one. I had made a million dollars already in high school. Um, but I guess I decided that there'll always be another time. I guess I had confidence in my skills. And I thought to myself, I can only do Harvard once. I can only, you know, be 19, 20, 21 and do this Harvard thing once. And I was enjoying it. So I'm going to do this now. And I know I can always come back to entrepreneurship afterwards. I, I was confident in my skill set. I could start a new business. So, um, well, I guess it worked out. So the good news is you started this other little company called Airbnb afterwards, which turned into 
quite a success as well. And speaking about it, you, you started in 2007, 2008 with your co-founders, which was in the middle of a recession. And I think you once said, an uncertain economy creates opportunities for entrepreneurs. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit. What, what do you mean by this? I mean, I think there's at least two things that we experienced that I think, you know, would be true for others too, which is, you know, one, so again, this is 2008, great financial uh, recession. Um, and for us, our earliest users were bankers in New York who had just lost their jobs and, you know, no longer could pay for their mortgages or their rents. And they were coming to Airbnb as a way to make the income to, to pay for their place. And I don't think they would have given it a shot had it not been for that situation. And so I, I do think um, a challenging economy pushes people to try new things, you know, it stresses the system. Uh, and so I think that's just generally something to keep in mind that, you know, adversity uh, can encourage people to try new things. But the second bit is, and also very important, is, you know, that first year we weren't able to raise capital. We tried, but we couldn't. Uh, so we had to be very scrappy. Um, and I actually think there's something good about that. Because what I found was when we did have money in those early days, and even it's true today, yeah. but the minute you have money in your pocket, I mean, it's easy to spend it. And when you spend it, you're not always, it, it doesn't force you to make trade-offs necessarily. Um, and so I think in those early days when we got some small investments, we were quick to spend it. We probably spent it on the wrong things. But the fact that for so long we didn't have money forced us to be scrappy uh, and creative. And I think that's true even for you know, big companies. And even for us today, you know, like the yeah. pandemic, uh, you know, really forced us to, to, to be scrappy and, and reevaluate what people were working on and prioritize things better. Yeah. Great starting point because, you know, we discussed a lot about today, you know, that we don't want to talk about recession, interest rates and all those things, but we want to talk about building companies independent of cycles because everyone who we had on stage today was starting a company actually in a time where it was Not that easy. So great to see that sometimes maybe in the beginning you're more capital constrained, you're more kind of focused on really building a painkiller, not a vitamin for the market. Maybe given that was not the only crisis, so it feels like the journey of Airbnb had been so impressive by what you managed in 2011. The first home got ransacked. You had to fight a lot with regulation. And then if that wasn't enough, there was this little crisis called COVID, which basically shut business down 100%. I think you once mentioned a quote by Andrew Grove, bad companies are destroyed by a crisis, good companies survive a crisis, but great companies are defined by a crisis. How have those crises impacted Airbnb as an organization? Yeah, I think our first real crisis was back in 2011. Um, it was this incident where, you know, for the first time, someone's apartment was really vandalized uh, by a guest. And it was a very high profile situation written about widely. Um, and this was a big crisis because it went to the heart of what everyone fears, which is how can you trust someone with your, your asset of your home, you know, a very personal thing. Um, and these were early days. And so people are like, you know, I told you so it wasn't a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I guess a couple things, one, you know, we treated it like a crisis. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you just kind of were hoping it would blow over. And it was tempting to just say, okay, just give it a couple of days and, you know, the news media will move on and, you know, people forget about this. But we didn't do that. We didn't manage it away. We didn't wish it away. We actually leaned into it and we stopped everything we're doing. And this, at this point, we had like 200 employees. We said, everybody stop what you're doing 
everybody needs to brainstorm. How can we make Airbnb um, more of a trustworthy platform? Yeah. And over the span of just two weeks, we actually launched 40 new features that were all- 40, 40 features in, in two weeks. Wow. So you were uh, head of engineering back then, so it was, seemed to be quite busy days. <laughs> well, I mean, people worked a lot around the clock. It was a 24-7, two weeks. Uh, everybody stopping what they're doing, contributing. Uh, and we, we launched 40 features. And um, you know, many of them were features that still exist today. But I think nobody expected that kind of reaction. And that's the key with a crisis, or restoring trust, I should say. You need to go above and beyond what people expect. You know, people expected us to try to make the situation right. I don't think they expected us to go launch 40 new features two weeks later. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that's, that's kind of the bar. Um, and, you know, you, you got to internalize that a crisis, you need to go from what I call like a peacetime operating rhythm to a wartime rhythm where, you know, you tell everyone to stop and it's very tops down and you say, hey, like, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z to get ahead of uh, this, this crisis. And so... Anyways, that's something we experienced early on, very painful, but we learned this lesson that you come out stronger. And so now every time we, we think there's a crisis, we, we, we are quick to, to try to realize it and basically tell everyone, we got to stop what we're doing. We got to lean into this. We take it seriously. And we did the same thing with the pandemic. When we saw the pandemic happen, we didn't make incremental cuts and try to like wait out and see what happened. We instantly kind of leaned in and said, hey, we got to be bold and decisive. Um, and navigate this thing proactively. Did this also shape you as a person? Well, absolutely. Um, look, it's a scary time. Um, and you also have to realize that all your employees are scared. Your people are scared. Your community might be scared. They're reading things about you, you know? And so I think it's, another key lesson is um, communicating yeah. proactively. And it's hard because you don't have all the answers. And there's probably things that your lawyers are telling you you can't say. Um, but you still have to talk to people. You have to build the trust with your employees, with your stakeholders through this. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there is a temptation in these situations to just kind of, uh, you know, go off and hide or wait an extra few days before you say something. Um, but I, I think every day matters. I really admire with how much authenticity you guys have handled all those crises because I think there are many lawyers and consultants that maybe consult you how to, how you would deal with such a thing and, how the playbook would look like. You did the opposite and maybe that's exactly why you sustained because you kept it as entrepreneurs and just kept being authentic. You know, the, the theme today is disrupting to endure, as you know, and maybe we can speak a few about a few crucible, crucible moments uh, in your journey. One was in 2011. It's actually, in retrospect, a little funny one, a very embarrassing one for Europe, but this company called Vimdu came up, raising 100 million euros copying your model one-on-one. -on -one, and then I'm just giving a quote what Odi Zamba said to you. You're the Americans. You're the innovators. We're the executors. We're going to copy you. We're going to clone you. We're going to out-execute you if you're not going to buy us. So what was your initial re reaction? And why is Airbnb now worth 100 billion and Vimdo is worth zero? This, this was this was kind of super scary at the time, and like probably one of the biggest decisions we ever made. Absolutely, the biggest decision. Um, at the start of 2011, we were just 40 people. You know, the year prior, we had raised just seven million dollars, 70 million or so post money valuation, and then in May of 2011, 
still, you know, let's say probably 50 people, we raise $100 million at a $1.3 billion valuation. Huge jump. And part of that's also... Pretty much the same raise, right? So could say equal amounts in the beginning? Uh. Well, we raised this money because we knew we had to scale internationally. We knew we suddenly had competition. And, you know, a week later, the Samware brothers announced that they're putting $100 million into this venture too. And so, you know, this is very intense. And they approached us about cooperating, about doing a deal. And so we had to, you know, a fiduciary duty, we had to kind of take it seriously and consider it. So we came out to Berlin and checked out the operation. And, you know, like I said, we were 40 or 50 people at the time. And I go into an office with 200 people in front of me, like this room, <laughs> with their laptops out, you know, <laughs> with our website pulled up and they're, you know, copying <laughs> CSS and HTML. And you could see posts. them literally copying one. And it's just like, it's like, well, I have 40 people, you have 200. And like, it just, it just was such a mind, such a scary thing. Um, and then there was their reputation and their re great reputation for executing um, serial entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, they have basically existing offices and teams. And we thought, wow, you know, if we work together, you know, we, we are the visionaries, we have the ideas, but you do have the manpower. We could do something together. And if we don't do something together, I mean, you're quite literally um, picking us apart. Uh, so we were entertaining it. I think the thing, the really important thing that we realized though, was that we were dealing with mercenaries. You know, all these people had been taken off another company probably three weeks earlier and repositioned into this new venture. Um, and, you know, probably three months later, they'd be onto something else. Um, and, you know, that might work for certain business models. And Groupon, you know, had been the famous, fastest growing e-commerce company the year before. And they played a big role in that success story. And I think for the Groupon model, maybe it kind of worked for a while at least. Um, and I can see how a transactional kind of mercenary model might work. But for Airbnb, which is so trust-based, we didn't think it would work. And, you know, one of the tactics was, you know, basically, you know, messaging hosts that were on the Airbnb platform and trying to convince them to come onto the Wimdu platform. Um, and people would because they would be incentivized to. Uh, but those incentives don't buy loyalty. It doesn't really buy trust. And of course, the platform wasn't robust enough to really create the trust either. Yeah. And so we realized, you know, these tactics, they're not going to work at buying trust. If we work together, I'm sure we can do it. But we also realize if we don't do it together, that their tactics might not be as big a threat as they seem. And so we, we said, look, if, if we work with them, we're not going to like who we become, right? We, we really believe in this for the long term. I think they believe in it for the short term. So uh, we care a lot about our culture and, and, and hiring missionaries. So we're going to do it our own way. But we did feel like we had to respond. And so we built our own team very quickly all across Europe, hired our own people, um, and built with a, a little bit more of a long-term mindset in terms of the culture we wanted to create. Yeah. You know, ultimately, over the span of a year or two, um, you know, achieved massive scale, whereas yeah. they struggled. And again, I think it came down to the fact that you can't buy trust in a transactional way, and yeah. our business is built on trust. I must say, I just love this story because it's almost like a university case study with a control group where you have product-driven founders who are obsessed And who are thinking in a 20, 30 year horizon to really build something long versus we're business school guys. We're quickly copying something. We want to quick flip it within five years. And, and there you go. There's the result. So maybe good advice for you when you, when you start a company and, uh, and very impressive how you've dealt with the situation. So actually 
again, adversity came for advantage because maybe they even pushed you to be faster in Europe, to be more aggressive. Oh, for sure. To, yeah, uh, we had to change the way uh, we operate and be much more aggressive. Yeah. Another very crucible moment is not that long time ago when COVID hit in, maybe the biggest pandemic of our time. And I mean, what a story when a successful business that you've built over years, basically the core of your model goes to zero. So travel dropped by 80%. And what I don't get in my head is how the fucking hell can you IPO a travel company just after or within the crisis via Zoom with a 100 billion IPO? So how did you react to this crisis and how did that happen? I mean, I never would have suspected that in, in March or April or May or even June of 2020. But a few things happened. Um, you know, most obviously... When the pandemic was declared, borders closed, we lost 80% of our revenue in eight weeks. Yet, you know, we had 7,500 employees go off. So we had huge boom and suddenly no revenue coming in. And so we just immediately knew that we had to make the hard financial decisions uh, to right size the business, which meant raising billions of dollars and meant doing a big layoff, uh, which was, you know, an exceptionally sad thing. Um, but also very clear um, that it was it was necessary. But also, with fewer resources, we had to decide, you know, if we can basically only finance half the company or uh, afford half the company, you know, which half do we want to keep? You know, what's most important? And there's an opportunity to do a very rigorous prioritization. Um, and we decided that, you know, we need to, the core, what's most special about Airbnb is our host hosting our core business we need to double down on the core, you know, leading up to the pandemic, we had raised a lot of money. We were going in a lot of different directions. We we're doing flights and luxury and hotels and all these different things that are not bad ideas, but they, um, they weren't our core business. Um, and so we doubled down on the core and that didn't just mean, um, not doing the other stuff. It meant we reorged the company. So that, you know, basically we're now a functional organization, not with like lots of BUs, but a functional organization. Like, you know, basically everybody worked on the same things. All your best people worked on the core business. And, you know, with that kind of collaboration and focus, uh, we were very productive. We started moving really fast. And that was important during the pandemic because, you know, things were changing very fast. Yeah. Consumer expectations about safety uh, and where they wanted to travel uh, rural areas, longer stays, this was happening and evolving month to month. And so we were actually able to sh respond to that very quickly. And I, so I think the important thing we demonstrated during the pandemic is adaptability. And there are two parts to that. One is that Airbnb is inherently adaptable because we have homes all around the world and, and cities and rural areas. And you know we can accommodate any kind of use case inherently. But also, I think from an execution standpoint, we adapted. We were able to adapt because we got really focused and really rigorous about prioritization and making trade-offs. Yeah. And that allowed us to execute and, and basically uh, you know, start to get some tailwinds in the second half of 2020. And not just tailwinds, but we are now a more lean and fit company too. And we had demonstrated that we could make hard decisions. And so it actually was a really exciting you know, IP story for investors yeah. uh, when they saw that we could navigate adversity with so much success. Yeah. I think it's, for me personally, it's the most impressive IPO story I've ever seen because I think managing such an IPO in such a market time is uh, something almost unparalleled. 
Well, and like our valuation, it dropped down to like raising money at was effectively like $30 a share mm. in, let's say, May. You know, pricing an IPO, I think somewhere around 68, which was relatively high for what we had thought even a few weeks before. And then, you know, on opening day, the price going up into the like, I think, 130s or somewhere there, yeah. so, somewhere thereabouts. So, I mean, it was just such a roller coaster in a short period of time. Yeah. Um, Speaking a bit about resilience, 15 years in, all the three of your co-founders are still with the company and it doesn't seem any one of you wants to retire soon. What still keeps you so hungry and what really motivates you, what pushes you to achieve? I still think it's a very special opportunity. I think that there's the mountaintop of where we could take this thing is, is so much higher. Um, And, and I think we have, you know, more resources than ever in terms of talent, capital, uh, to go do things, to go build. Um, and I also think these challenges are more likely to be addressed and overcome and, and make this a reality, you know, with the founders involved. Um, I think, you know, as a founder, you inherently think longer term and you're inherently kind of excited by taking that big bet. Um, in a way that, you know, someone hired with a shorter time frame just, you know, might not be excited to bite off. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's what keeps me fired up is that there's still really, I think, impactful stuff to build where I can play a unique role yeah. um, and realizing that, you know, it's, it's a special company in terms of how it intersects with people's lives yeah. all around the world um, makes it really interesting for me. And I love, again, speaking about obsession and, and passion in your told me just now that you're traveling Europe with your family so you're basically going city by city how much of your stays is Airbnb still because I love that your founders you surrender your apartment you're you're just love being part of that journey all day so speaking about Europe London Munich all those uh, hubs you're traveling are, are you staying like with the whole family a lot in uh, in Airbnb places oh well, absolutely I mean if you have a family like you know <laughs> Airbnb makes a ton of sense I mean, it makes a ton of sense no matter what, I would say. But, uh, if you have a family, you need extra bedroom space and you want to be together as a family with a living room and a kitchen. I mean, that's, that's the value proposition of a home. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're staying uh, on Airbnb here in London and, and for, for uh, uh, most of the trip. And I'm, I'm keeping track of it, but so far we're at 100% Airbnb. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. So maybe we can get some discount vouchers later today during the party and uh, for, for all of us to travel. <laughs> Time is almost over, but I would still love to do two more questions. If you guys are up for it, I think we have enough uh, very, very well. <laughs> um, maybe a personal one. And I don't know if I've already asked it because you've spoke about so many of your experience, but is there any lesson that you really had to learn the hard way, either privately or while you were running Airbnb, which was really tough? Well, I, I think the prioritization one was, was tough. And I'll, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about why. You know, I, I mentioned that during the pandemic, you know, because we had ourselves in a crisis and uh, less headcount and less resources, um, you know, we had to cut a lot of projects. And I mean, I, they were all good ideas and a lot of effort had gone into it. And, you know, we lost 1,800 teammates. And I mean, all that was yeah. incredibly, you know, sad and disheartening. Um, But I look back and I realize that, you know, some of that was also the product of 
you know, not making trade-offs earlier. I mean, we yeah. could have had a tighter process and, and never gotten into that situation. And I think many companies are in this situation where, you know, after a decade of, of um, I'll, I'll say easier money fundraising wise um, and hyper growth, it, you know, it's easy to become a company that's a bit bloated and doing too many things and not focused. Um, and I think now that the company is thriving, once again, we're being very careful not to um, hire too quickly. Instead, just ask ourselves with the talent that we have, um, you know, what, what's most important and, yeah. and why do we need to be doing more stuff? Let's just be more careful about the things we choose to do. And so I, I think that discipline is something that's going to stick with us, even though we're outside of the, the window of adversity. Yeah. Um, and I think it applies to most tech companies uh, that have gone through the last decade. And I think it's the silver lining on what we've just gone through in this environment that we're in that's a little tougher. I do think that going back to the founding of the company, like when you have access to money too easily, it doesn't force the hard choices. Yeah. Yeah. And hard choices, I do think, you know, make for better outcomes. Yeah. Thank you so much for this honest, honest answer. One last one. A few friends told me within your company you're called the wild card. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess my... Look, I've been at Airbnb for 15 years. And throughout that period, I've done a lot of different things. And my general philosophy has been like, we're lucky enough to be high, hire like amazingly talented people, people who know much more about any given subject than I do. And so whenever you can do that, you do that. You hire people better than yourself. You put yourself out of a job. Um, and, you know, one, you get great talent and, and someone better at running engineering or whatever than, than you could do. Um, but second, I found that there's always something that uh, loose ends, strategic projects, something new that needs founder attention. And so there's, even though I'm constantly putting myself out of a job, It makes myself available for the next challenge, which inevitably, if you're going through a lot of growth, there's always a challenge and something to jump into. And so that's meant over the last 15 years, I could jump into a lot of different things, uh, whether it's originally the engineering team, and then I ran online marketing for a while, and our analytics team, and I've been running our payments team for the last six months. Uh, I, I did our China expansion, a lot of international growth. So I've touched a lot of different parts of the company. And I think you know, one thing I also realize a superpower that a founder has uh, is ability to create collaboration across the company. And this becomes really important the bigger you are. It's one thing if everyone knows each other and you're like a hundred people or a few hundred people, but when you have thousands of people um, and a lot of new people, you know, they don't know the history of the organization, the context, they don't know who to talk to, to, to unlock a bigger idea that's outside of just, you know, their area of influence. And so again, as a, as a founder being, available to work with teams um, and create that collaboration. And look, I'm not the CEO. There's three of us. Brian is the CEO. I'm chief strategy officer. Uh, but it doesn't matter if people report to me or not. As co-founder, you have a certain kind of moral authority to lead um, and to explain, you know, the strategy of the company and, you know, share a vision for how a team can take something Uh, and 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 make it a reality. So, um, going back to the question about the wild card, it's, it's it's basically my philosophy of 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 you know always trying to make myself available for the next challenge and having jumped into a lot of different areas, um, which I think as company at scale is 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 really valuable. 
Jesus, I think we would love to have a wildcard at Visionaries. But Nate, thank you so much for joining us, making it all the way to London. It was amazing speaking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, everybody.